Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to the Know Your Rights series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real. The information provided in this session is for information purposes only. It must not be relied on as legal advice. You should seek individual legal advice about your own particular circumstances. Hi, I'm Dan Cox, a broadcast journalist with the ABC based in Newcastle, Australia. I'll be your host for this part of the podcast called Know Your Rights, the anti-poverty series. Thanks to Newcastle Libraries Real, Samaritans, Nova for Women and Children and Newcastle Poverty Action Alliance. You'll hear from three eminent Australians regarding poverty in Australia and what actions you can take to reduce poverty in our society and communities. In this episode of Know Your Rights, you'll hear from Emma Dawson. She's Executive Director of Public Policy Think Tank, Per Capita. She's worked as a researcher at Monash University and the University of Melbourne in policy and public affairs for SBS and Telstra, and as a senior policy advisor in the Rudd and Gillard governments. Emma Dawson has published reports, articles and opinion pieces on a wide range of public policy issues. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian Australia and the Australian Financial Review. She's a frequent guest on various ABC radio programs nationally and an occasional panellist on ABC TV's The Drum. She appears regularly as an expert witness before parliamentary inquiries and often speaks at public events and conferences in Australia and internationally. Emma is the co-author of Per Capita's landmark report, Measure for Measure, Gender Equality in Australia, and co-editor of the upcoming collection of essays, What Happens Next? Reconstructing Australia After COVID-19, to be published by Melbourne University Press in September 2020. Welcome to the series, Emma Dawson. Thanks very much for having me along. Australia is a wealthy country. Why are we unable to distribute wealth? It's an excellent question, and uh, it comes down to the choices that we make collectively, individually, and most importantly, politically. We are one of the wealthiest nations on earth. In fact, a couple of years ago, we overtook Switzerland as having the highest average household wealth per capita in the world. We are blessed with abundant natural resources, fantastic weather, a very low population density, and one of the world's highest average standards of living. But there are still significant pockets in our community and across our society of people who are doing it really tough. The most obvious group that's really not been um, included in Australia's prosperity is First Nations people who continue to suffer some of the highest levels of ill health and poverty and shortened life expectancy in the world, certainly compared to Australians, to white Australians and people Australians. They're faring very badly indeed. But even more broadly across society, we know that despite prior to the onset of COVID-19, what was 28 years of headline economic growth increases in our gross domestic product year on year, 
a world record-breaking run of time without a, a technical lease recession. There was a persistent 10% of Australians that were living in permanent income poverty and about one in six Australian children live in poverty and go uh, without a meal uh, on any one week in Australia. So why don't we distribute our wealth better? It's a lot to do with our tax and transfer settings and with the political messages that we're sold by our leaders that lead people to believe actually that um, if they give up a little bit to make their fellow Australians a little bit better off, then we then go backwards. When in actual fact, all of the evidence and all of the political economy studies around the world will show that reducing inequality boosts everyone's chances of having a better life. So with that said, how can we change that? How can we distribute wealth better? The one of the, the key words there is wealth. We tend to focus on income uh, very much in Australia and we look at income equality and we look at and we tax income, our tax system, our government revenue is highly dependent on income tax. It's about 70% of revenue. We don't tax wealth uh, and we don't talk about wealth inequality and it's actually wealth that drives inequality and drives intergenerational disadvantage. So assets in Australia are taxed very lightly indeed and people who can make their income off assets rather than from labour, people who uh, draw an income from investment properties or share portfolios or from other investments are able to accumulate that wealth without having to share it through our tax and transfers nearly so much as do people who get their income from labour. So really that's again a political decision that's made about how we tax revenue and how we raise government revenue and distribute it across our nation. Access to justice and knowing your rights is what really matters to us. If it matters to you too, please share the Know Your Rights series on Newcastle Library's Real with your friends and rate us and review us on iTunes. It's 2020 and women were in economic crisis before the economic crisis sparked by the pandemic. It's been noted that it's been predominantly female jobs lost because of COVID-19, while at the same time, Women have been at home providing care, like homeschooling children, and they're also taking money out of their superannuation to stay afloat. How significant is this pandemic, this setback for women? Significantly, and it's different to previous recessions that we've experienced. The nature of the recession brought on by the pandemic is one that has been, in a way, deliberately created, and necessarily so. So the industries that have been shut down or put on the mothball during the economic shutdown and the need for social distancing disproportionately employ women, so retail, hospitality, food services and so on. And it's women on the front lines with healthcare, social care and assistance, aged care, early childhood care and education and teaching who are doing some of the most important jobs. Those jobs are undervalued and underpaid in our economic system. And so women have really borne the brunt of uh, the loss of jobs, the loss of hours. They've taken on more unpaid work and care at home, supporting children with online learning. They're much more likely than men to have reduced their income and their hours of work voluntarily or to have detached from the labour market altogether by making the decision that, you know, my hours have been cut, it's not worth me putting my child in childcare where our income's down, I'll stay at home, apply for family tax benefit and just stop looking for work. So we are really at risk of setting women's workforce participation and financial security back 
inspired generation. And one of the critical things that you mentioned there was the early withdrawal of Bupa, which was a deliberate government policy. And we know that women are more likely to have drawn out more of their Bupa than men, that a significant number of women under 35, at least from what we can tell, around 300,000 have wiped out their super balances entirely. And those women are going to be heading into the years where they are at home caring for children or working part-time to accommodate caring for children, can't really build those super balances back up and they won't have money in that account that would otherwise have been at least earning compound interest during their years uh, out of or only partially attached to the workforce. So we are likely to see this really come home to roost as, you know, even 30, 40 years from now, those women uh, will be much worse off than they otherwise would have been unless we take active steps to intervene and get women back to work, improve their ability to work more hours by providing affordable, accessible childcare, improving the quality of care for older people. We know that the loss of faith in the aged care system that may occur after this will mean women will be more likely to care for their elderly parents at home and to restore those uh, retirement savings that they've had to raid in order to make ends meet. At that time, when, when superannuation began, and it was only those laws changed in the 90s. And that's when businesses would contribute to the super as well as yourself. So you didn't have to contribute to the super, they, they did. Now we've got a law that's going to change again soon for people that don't work full time. You've mentioned some steps there. What can we do to make sure this crisis brings about change and uh, those steps you mentioned to make sure it actually happens? Yeah, and this is something that's going to be a challenge for us in the years ahead. So I think while the government should be applauded for having stepped in with wage subsidies and increasing the rate of job seeker or new start as it was during the acute phase of the crisis, what we're not seeing is a plan for the recovery as yet, any meaningful plan to restore jobs, to create new jobs and to support women and young people who will be most badly scarred by this recession and also any older workers, people over 55 that have been thrown out of work are unlikely, uh, we know from past experience, to get back into the workforce. So we're seeing a lot of talk about tax cuts and task forces to uh, attract international companies and um, the sort of usual supply side interventions that the government has relied on to manage the economy for years now. But actually, they weren't working before the crisis and they're very unlikely to work in the wake of it. What we need to see is a serious commitment to fiscal stimulus. And by that, I mean government spending directly into the economy that will support people on low and middle incomes and those that have been thrown out of work. So tax cuts for people on six figures salaries, which is what the government's talking about bringing forward, are going to do very little to stimulate the economy. The um, national accounts data came out and we know that a higher income Australians are saving. The savings rate's gone up from 6% to 20% during the pandemic, so they're putting their money away. Whereas low income people have seen their incomes boosted through JobKeeper and JobSeeker are spending more. So we need the money going into the pockets of people that will spend it on essential goods and services so we can get businesses back up and running and small businesses and and employers in hospitality and retail need to see people spending, not people who are already doing very well, putting more money into their super or into the share market. We also need to see a plan for real job creation and that means government working hand in hand with the private sector to identify where jobs can be created, where jobs can be restored and I think critically 
actually an investment in the foundational economy, and by that I mean the jobs where 40% of Australians work in the care of others, care of children, care of the elderly, care of people with disabilities, in education, in health, in uh, government services and social services. These are not traditionally jobs that governments invest in when they're seeking to stimulate the economy, but as I said, they're where the majority of people work. Well, certainly they're the biggest employer across the board of Australians, services jobs, and they are underpaid and absolutely essential to supporting our way of life and disproportionately held by women. So we need to see some new thinking around what government investment needs to look like to rebuild the economy. Talking about the jobs that are dominated by women, highly feminised workplaces also have high levels of casualisation and precarious employment. That's just a coincidence, isn't it? No, not at all. And it's not unique to Australia either, Dan, which is the important thing to remember. So around the world, this is true, and it's been true for millennia, or certainly since the industrialisation of Western economies, is that work that was once the realm of the domestic sphere, so reproductive labour, as they call it, caring for children, keeping house, making food, those were traditionally seen as domestic chores and not part of the paid economy. And so they're seen as women's work and they're undervalued by our political system. When the gross domestic product was invented about 80 years or so, 90 years or so ago, there was a deliberate decision made by the developers of that measure, by which we all now measure our uh, economic growth, to exclude unpaid labour. So to exclude the work done by women in the home. And that accounts for, by most measures, at least 50% of the average national GDP. So we don't count that labour. And that has extended now that more women have gone into the pay labour force to that kind of what was previously domestic labour being outsourced to um, paid workers. And because it is seen as really mundane, unskilled work, which it, of course, isn't, there's nothing more challenging than caring for other people, particularly children and vulnerable adults. But because it's seen as something that's just been done for love for millennia, it is accordingly undervalued and underpaid and it's seen as reproductive rather than productive labour. And so we value those jobs that are seen to create more money to add to income, whether that's through making new goods and services or increasing the value of money in our economy much more highly than we do the jobs that are essential to our well-being, our health, education and our ability to live a good life. And that's something that's going to take a great deal of challenge to overturn that thinking, but it's absolutely critical if we're going to reverse the impact of that devaluing of women's work on women's lifetime financial security. What about older women? How do we address the poverty that older women experience because of chronic disparity in wages, superannuation that you mentioned earlier, and that casualisation? It's a wicked problem. We've been calling it that at per capita for a few years now, but the fact that 34% of single women in Australia who rely on the age pension live in permanent income poverty is a really significant and wicked problem. And it is, as you say, the result of all of those factors combining over the lifetime, as we showed in our measure report, the impact of gender discrimination and, and uh, women's lower opportunities and the higher load of unpaid work and care they take on does compound so that we see that women over 55 are the fastest growing group at risk of homelessness in Australia. And particularly women that don't own their own home and don't live in a couple relationship, 60% more likely to live in poverty than are men. How do we address that? There are a number of things that can be done. We need to consider, firstly, the role of housing. So the biggest indicator of a risk of poverty in old age is not owning your own home. And we have an absolute dearth of social public housing and community housing across the country. So a big investment in public housing and community 
housing and a new build of many hundreds of thousands of units over the coming decade will be necessary and those need to be built in a way that accommodate people's changing needs as they age as well. So universal accessibility standards, locating them in communities where people have built their lives so they can be close to their families and close to their social networks. That's an obvious investment that would also bring a real stimulus to the economy and would help many of those older women that are trapped in income poverty in the private rental market. I was on New Start before, because I was, what was I, I was 63 when this all happened. So I was on New Start and it's a very difficult amount of money to live on and it's impossible to rent something on that income and I don't squander money and I don't drink and I don't smoke. So I, I wasn't money being spent on other things, but it's I don't know how. You, and if, if you're living alone, I, it's almost nigh impossible. You're going to have to live with someone, whether that's in a relationship or share accommodation with someone. And so that's not, it's not a self-determining factor that you can live on your own and make your own way. We need to increase rates of superannuation savings, particularly for women and particularly for women in part-time work. The talk of not increasing the super guarantee levy now, I think, is going to massively disproportionately disadvantage women and particularly women that rely on award wages and on the SG rate. A great many of the people that are calling for super not to rise are getting well above the 9.5% that's in the award at the moment because they're on workplace agreements, negotiated contracts that give them 12, 15 uh, even 17%, for example, in the university sector. 15.6% goes to parliamentarians who are arguing for this to be kept down. It's really those low-income workers that rely on the legislated rate and haven't negotiated anything above that. So we need to lift that. And we also need to increase the rate of the age pension. It is amongst the lowest in the OECD. It is thoroughly inadequate if you don't own a home and you're relying on the pension, then you're living below the poverty line. Even if you do own a home, the rate of the age pension uh, means that Australia that have you know, worked all their lives, um, often women that have worked and devoted themselves to the care of others are living really frugal lives, if not in poverty, in their older age. But earlier on, we need to change the structure of work. We need to share unpaid work more evenly. We need to allow for more flexible working. We need to regulate part-time and casual work so that it's more secure, lift the incomes and paying conditions of women in those care economy jobs. And the big game changer for me I'd like to see is a gradual reduction in a standard uh, full-time working week to four days a week so that men and women can more evenly share the duties of home-based work, unpaid labour, domestic labour and childcare. So much work to do there, but we have a responsibility to uh, make it better for future generations of women. Absolutely. Your organisation, Per Capita, recently published an article calling for an end to work for the doll, suggesting instead a genuine work experience program replace it. How would that program be more effective than the current work for the doll program? Yes, so we've done a lot of work in this area of employment services reform and and Simone Casey, my colleague, has um, a really in-depth knowledge of the system and just how much it's failing people at the moment. Work for the doll really isn't anything other than a compliance measure. It seems to be 
deliberately targeted now at ensuring people get out of bed and do something rather than uh, actually giving them um, skills and opportunities and training. Uh, and it rests on that assumption that if they're not forced to, uh, unemployed people won't get out of bed. They desperately want to. Um, people want to work. People trapped in that system want to do something meaningful and be able to um, earn an income. So we think that work for the dollar as it is does very little to give people new skills, to give them access to the kinds of opportunities they might need to find ongoing work or to connect them with employers in their local regions. Um, it's really a, a very much a make-work scheme as part of the punitive system of employment services that we have. Phase two of my encounter with social security it was different. Right, Once I went into Centrelink and I was applying for, for benefits, I felt lower, of a lower order. Yeah. It was just necessary for them to collect a lot of personal information about myself, my family, my assets, my past, anything, criminal record, the whole, all of that stuff. that I can't remember that being the case in the 1980s. We'd like to see a much more thoughtful and carefully designed system of work experience put in place, active labour market programs that place people in, in workplaces that are able to expose them to the real skills that are needed in the economy, that provides them with opportunities for training and reskilling, and that gives them the kind of work experience that builds on their skills and capacity to then move into jobs in the private or public sector at the end of a, a certain period of time. Too many work for the doll placements are about working in charities, working in folding clothes, in, in op shops and they, you know these are important things to be done but they are effectively volunteer roles um, they're not giving young people in particular the kinds of skills and training that they need to then build um, their own careers. For a similar amount of money we could do a lot better. Ever some of the skills and training may need to be in technology we have become more and more reliant on digital communication thanks to the pandemic. How do we address digital inclusion, digital literacy to ensure that we don't see just more disadvantage it's a critical issue and, and my work at Telstra was very much focused on, on digital inclusion and what we know is that the digital divide in Australia and other developed countries around the world um, has narrowed over recent years. So there are many fewer people now that don't have digital skills than there were 10 or 20 years ago. But the divide has also deepened so that those people who don't have skills and access to digital technology are much more disadvantaged by it because of the increasing reliance on technology and digital communications. They also face greater barriers to achieving that access and building those skills. So targeted support for people particularly, and we, we know, for example, it doesn't crop up in the way that other barriers to employment do. So, for example, people from non-English speaking backgrounds actually have comparatively high levels of digital skills and access. It does cleave quite closely to rates of poverty and disadvantage, so not being able to afford the equipment or the connection is a big barrier, but so is a lack of education uh, across the board. So standard literacy and numeracy, um, when people have, have low literacy and numeracy skills, those translate across into low digital literacy skills as well. So investing in education for people from socioeconomically um, disadvantaged backgrounds, the First Nations Australians, and from kids that come from backgrounds that might, might have suffered from family trauma or family violence, really intervening early on to improve their reading and numeracy skills and then to build those into an ability to access and navigate their, their way around digital communications tools is critical, but so is providing affordable access to, uh, to internet connections and to devices that children from um, low socioeconomic backgrounds are going to need to make sure that those 
still accessible and available throughout their lives. It's hard to watch women struggle through poverty, sorry, and it's it's so go through domestic violence relationships, lose everything every time they've thought they've made a step forward and, and come out of that relationship and either have to rebuild all of their belongings again, the fridge, the washing machine, the this, the that, the, you know, the memories that have gone in their belongings that, you know, have been lost either through transit of being homeless or, you know, they've had a storage shed that they set up with all good intentions but they're very expensive, very financially draining and a lot of women lose those sheds and all their possessions are gone again. Poverty, homelessness and domestic violence is a lot of restarting for a lot of women which is just adds to that poverty trap because it's almost impossible to get out of once you're in that. Did you know that you can find law handbooks, tenants' rights manuals and other helpful legal information and links in the Newcastle Library's e-library? Look for business, law and consumer information on our website. We've covered a few issues, but overall, what do you think the public needs to know to bring about change? I think there's a lack of awareness amongst the public of just how tough some Australians are doing it. I think everyone in Australia thinks they're worse off than they are. Surveys consistently show that people think they're in a lower socioeconomic bracket than they are. Actually, only about 7% of Australians earn over $120,000 a year, and yet those tend to be the voices that dominate our public debate. Um, the you know the median income, the, av- the average income in Australia is around 65000 the median is below fifty, And that means there's as many people earning less than that uh, as there are earning more. There are, as I said, 10% of people that are in permanent income poverty across the country and that goes up significantly to about a third of First Nations people. So really painting that realistic picture for people and, and the work that you do with these podcasts and so on is a big part of that and educating people about the persistence and the deep pockets of disadvantage because I think most Australians are shocked when they hear the truth of that. They actually do think we live in a much more egalitarian nation. They want to see their neighbours and their communities thrive. It's not a naturally selfish country. We're a naturally gregarious and community-minded people. So I think getting that public conversation applied more broadly and, and spreading the word about it is critical and really getting people to think about, well, what decisions do I make when I vote for certain policies or for certain changes, when I throw my support behind certain things? Am I doing so in a way that will marginally improve my life but greatly disadvantage other people? And just for us to demand a better policy-making process so that governments apply, for example, a gender lens to their policy decisions and think about how different economic and social policies are going to affect women and women's security, how it's going to affect people from low socioeconomic backgrounds, how it's going to affect First Nations people, refugees, migrants, those temporary visa workers that do some of the uh, most poorly rewarded work and the gig economy work. Let's try to, you know, have a have a lens that allows us to say, well, is this the best possible policy for the nation as a whole? And recognise that actually as a nation we all do better when we reduce inequality and lower levels of inequality lead to higher growth and better standards of living across the board. So it's in all of our interests to have a more equal and more fair Australia. What are you pessimistic about, Emma? I'm pessimistic at the moment about the suggestions coming from the government about its approach to the recovery. I you know, want the government to do well because I want the country to do well. And so the suggestions that we're seeing ahead of next, of next month's budget now about tax cuts for high-income earners 
cutting red tape and green tape for business, reducing the barriers to foreign investment and and things like um, creating more flexibility and deregulating the labour force, uh, I think are all the things that have, have led us to where we are now, where we do have people working in insecure jobs, unable to take time off work when they're sick because they don't get paid, unable to access affordable housing. Um, I'm not seeing much in what's being proposed by our current federal government that will address the very real problems that have come to the fore during this crisis. So while there was a, a brief moment of a kind of acceptance of Keynesian stimulatory economics during the acute crisis, it does appear now that we might be snapping back to the way things were before. And uh, certainly for the last decade, if not more, wage growth, employment growth, security of employment, security of housing for people at the lower end of our income scale was rapidly going backwards while people at the top were going very, very well indeed. So I'm pessimistic that we will snap back to that rather than surge forward to something that could be a lot better. But we have to keep trying and fighting to ensure that that doesn't happen. There's no option for me but to be as optimistic as possible. So pessimism isn't something I indulge in too regularly. What are you optimistic about? Can we snap back? I'm optimistic about the Australian people because I think Whenever they're asked directly about these issues, do we want to see more spending on health and education? Do we want to see more support for people out of work? Do we want to see a fairer Australia? Do we want action on climate change? Then the majority of Australians say yes. It doesn't always uh, align with the way they may vote in certain elections or talk about certain issues. But in principle and in spirit, I think Australians are a fair people. And I think that as a whole, we have uh, a positive outlook on life. I think our young people fill me with a great deal of hope. They're standing up for action on climate change, for uh, equality, for the end of racism. They're activists in a way that we haven't seen for a couple of generations. And that fills me with hope as well. So I have to be an optimist. I couldn't do what I do if I weren't. I believe fundamentally in the goodness of human beings and that we have more in common than what divides us. Emma Dawson, thank you for being part of this episode of Know Your Rights. Thanks so much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to the Know Your Rights Anti-Poverty Series. Thanks to Newcastle Libraries Real, Samaritans, Nova for Women and Children and Newcastle Poverty Action Alliance. Make sure you rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Help spread the message. Thanks for listening to the Know Your Rights series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real. We hope this has raised your awareness. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real production.